You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. In the run-up to the election here, we've had a lot of action on the MyHistoryCanBeatUpYourPolitics.com website, and so it's uh, time to answer a few questions if we can. Some really good questions. First of all, um, Steve Freiss, uh from the website, who has a website, Vegas Happens Here, Dot com and has a podcast that looks like the Strip Podcast Guys, says, Hey, Bruce, I'd like to know if you can do a podcast on what the largest Senate and House majorities have been in U.S. history. With the prospect that Dems could hit a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate, I wondered how many times in U.S. history there's been a filibuster-proof or even a veto-proof uh, majority. Love the show. Uh, first of all, it's great to hear from the great swing state of Nevada and from the Las Vegas Strip. Thank you very much for your uh, question. I'm not going to go into veto-proof majority. Let's just talk about filibuster for a moment here. First, I think it's worthwhile to get into a little bit of what the filibuster is, and that is simply that any one senator in the United States Senate, true from the 1830s onward, can block uh, legislation, just one senator. It is not something the Founding Fathers intended. I don't think, uh, as an editorial, it's a very good procedure, but it's there, and it makes senators very powerful. So Steve's question is, has there ever been a, has a president ever had or party ever had a filibuster-proof majority? Um, it happened, well, first of all, let's explain about what a filibuster-proof majority can be. Now, you're only talking about a time period from 1917 forward because the filibuster was first used in the 1830s by opponents of Andrew Jackson, and from there to 1917, there was no such thing as a filibuster-proof majority. There was no check on the filibuster. If a senator wanted to do it, they got up and they spoke and they read the Bible and they read the newspaper and they stopped Senate proceedings until somebody said, okay, give the guy what they want or kill the legislation that they want to kill. Uh, by the way, it's not done that way anymore. You're not going to have that kind of Jimmy Stewart, Mr. Smith goes to Washington moment. It's just uh, handled without the floor speech. Thank you very much. The senator that wants to filibuster goes to the majority leader and the minority leader and says this is what they're going to do. And they work something out or the legislation's killed. They don't ever have that moment anymore. It was an unchecked power that senators had up until 1917. And that's because in the run-up to World War I, uh, we had discovered a letter where Germany seemed to be influencing the government of Mexico against the United States. And at the same time, Germany was sinking American ships. Americans had died on the high seas. And President Wilson and a lot of members of the Senate, of course, were outraged. And they wanted to pass a resolution condemning Germany. A few senators, progressives, particularly in the West, filibustered it. This was not a good time for a filibuster. It was not a good time to spotlight what is essentially an undemocratic maneuver that a few senators can kill legislation. 
This was similar to the aftermath of 9-11. There was a lot of patriotism, dislike of Germany. President Wilson was outraged, called them a bunch of, a little bunch of willful men. The president and his allies got the Senate rules changed to where now, with 67 senators, you could stop a filibuster, so-called cloture motion. So when we talk about a filibuster-proof majority, during that time period, up until the 70s, it required 67 senators or two-thirds of the senators that were present. So if members were absent, it would change the number. But you needed two-thirds. That's uh, 67 members. Did a president ever have, then, a filibuster-proof majority? Did they have the 67 senators? And it happened twice. One is in 1934, uh, when... Franklin Roosevelt had started the New Deal program. It was very popular, and voters were still punishing Republicans for the Great Depression. And from 1934 to 1942, Roosevelt and the Democrats had enough senators to block any filibusters. Then it would happen again in 1964, when Lyndon Johnson would beat Barry Goldwater in a landslide. By the way, it's an election that is repeatedly being compared to what 2008 might shape up to be because that was an election where Democrats last won Virginia and last won North Dakota. And those are two states, Virginia probably more likely than North Dakota, that possibly could go to the Democrats this year. And if they do, they're kind of seen as signs that the election has really run away and it would be kind of a landslide. In 1964, the Democrats won enough Senate seats to have 68 Democratic senators. Now, theoretically, that was enough Democrats to oppose a filibuster. And Lyndon Johnson was able to pass Medicare and some great society programs, the Voting Rights Bill. Uh, In theory, though, he had a filibuster-proof majority because he had to rely on Republicans to get a lot of the bills he wanted passed and had a good relationship with uh, Everett uh, Dirksen, Republican minority leader. Lyndon Johnson had been majority leader uh, in the 50s. So sometimes those cloture motions weren't all Democrats. The Southern Democrats opposed what Lyndon Johnson was trying to do with civil rights, for instance. The rules were changed after 1976 so that it's only required that 60 senators vote to end a filibuster. But even with that, that means if you have, uh, you need 40 to hold a filibuster. Conveniently, at that time, Democrats had 61 seats. But since then, they haven't had it. And I think the whole concept of a filibuster-proof majority is a little misleading because I don't think a president or a party leadership has ever really had it. There's always party rebels, and it takes so much to hold a closure motion. The filibuster, again, is an anti-democratic procedure. It's something that really should be gotten rid of with all haste, and it's not what the Founding Fathers intended. It makes one senator... Uh, much more powerful than anyone who planned the American government intended. And the Senate is not the most representative body because there's two senators for every state and states are of different sizes and populations. That being said, the filibuster will probably be around for a while. Will Obama win? Will a President Obama, uh, if elected, win a filibuster-proof majority? That remains to be seen. But one thing I do know from history even if they get to the magic number, the 60 senators. Don't expect that on all issues they'll have those 60 senators on a cloture motion. For instance, you know, some of the states that 
uh, Democrats might win seats from. You look at Mark Warner from Virginia. Um, you think about the Senate seat in Alaska. Places which are a little more conservative, red states where Bush won, are they going to go along with uh, President Obama on every uh, thing? There might be an issue like, well, this health care program is a little bit too, too far for me, or this Iraq program is a little bit too far, and I can't go along with this. I'm going to side with the filibuster, and they may have them. It may be a matter of reaching out to the two Republican moderate senators from Maine in order for Obama to get that cloture motion. So you shouldn't just think in pure party terms when you're thinking about a filibuster-proof majority. It's it's a very difficult thing for a cloture motion, and and uh, one might have to get a little creative to make it really happen. Okay, on a related question, Benjamin writes, Hi, Bruce. I discovered your podcast a few days ago and love it. I'm a total political junkie and history buff and have been getting really tired of the ubiquitous speculation in the media. It seems that their historical perspective stretches as far back as 2004 or maybe to 2000. On that note, I have a question. This election is predicted by many to be a landslide for Democrats. Obama probably winning the White House, maybe a 60-seat majority in the Senate, and probably 20 to 30 seats more in the House. All this talk comes only four years after Karl Rove and Republicans predicted that they'd create a permanent majority in Congress and shrink Democrats into irrelevance. So the real question is, will there be a similar realignment now? Will a President Barack Obama and a Democratic House and Senate lead to a Democratic domination of politics for a long, long time? To put this into context, the Republicans in Congress, particularly during the period of 2001 to 2006, from the time George Bush was elected president to when they lost the House, really attempted to develop what they called a shock-proof majority, a way that Republicans could not lose control even if something happened and voters got mad at them for a year here, a year there. They would build a fundraising infrastructure, a lobbying infrastructure, a media infrastructure to just simply prevent that from happening. And Republicans certainly had a good run, but obviously in 2006 it just didn't work. So I would be very skeptical of anyone on the Democratic side who says we're going to do the same thing. I'm generally skeptical of the so-called political realignments. Now, there have been times when parties have had awfully good runs. From the Civil War until 1912, the Republicans won every presidential election but two. That's almost 70 years. Every presidential election but two, and they lost to the same guy, Grover Cleveland. And they were both fairly, and it was a fairly close election when he first won. The Republicans built a power base of union veterans. They set up uh, pensions for union veterans and got to be known as the, the party that would take care of them. Well, the Democrats were the party that had supported the Confederates. But even all that, even though uh, Republicans had uh, a great political organization, it only took nine years after the guns fell silent in the Civil War for Democrats to take back the House. The next big political earthquake would be 1932, when Franklin Roosevelt beat Herbert Hoover. Now, it's hard to imagine a president that had performed worse than Hoover, with the Great Depression on his watch. Yet, Hoover still got 40% of the vote. That should really indicate, when anyone says that a party's going to be dead no matter, that should really indicate that there's always a, a little group of hardcore supporters in, in both of our two parties in America. It's very difficult to imagine one being vanquished uh, forever. 
it took just, again, nine years after the stock market crash of 1929 for Republicans to gain seats in an election. They didn't get the House back, but they gained seats in the election of 1938. And at that point, American voters were, well, they haven't forgiven them for the Great Depression. They were voting for them again. And they'd get the House back in 1946. Still, overall, it was a good run for Democrats. They controlled the House for the most part, with a couple blips, until 1994. As to whether uh, Barack Obama's electoral win, if he does win, would lead to an ushering in of a Democratic majority in our politics for time to come, it sort of depends. And it depends on really how much the name of George Bush survives in our politics um, the way that the name Herbert Hoover did. And do voters constantly remember? An interesting point is that in the 1936 election, when Franklin Roosevelt ran for re-election, he ran against a fellow named Alf Landon, who's the governor of Kansas. And not unlike John McCain, Alf Landon was kind of a maverick Republican. He actually supported a lot of the New Deal programs, though as a presidential candidate, he didn't. When he was governor, he did. Franklin Roosevelt didn't even run against Landon, never mentioned his name referred back to President Hoover. The Democratic campaign referred back to the days of Hoover. And Roosevelt, the most he would do is say, my Republican opponent. If it gets to that level where we're still talking about the Bush presidency by, let's say, the midterms of 2010, then you know, yes, you probably have in the making a political legacy or dynasty here of a, of a sorts. Right now, I'm not sure. This is a very hot election. There's a couple things going on right now uh, that will explain the electoral victory. And it's not entirely clear if um, this will continue for years and years and years. Normal historical trends would tell you that by 2010, Democrats are going to lose seats if Barack Obama wins the presidency. And if uh, Barack Obama's reelected, it's way too early to predict that at this time, by 2014, there would probably be even bigger losses in the House because that would be the second term midterm, and that just almost always, with the exception of Bill Clinton, lose you lose seats. Lexer Luther writes, I would like to know what you think is the best argument for why history has relevance when analyzing today's politics. I doubt I'm the first person to request this. So if you've answered this question before, could you just direct me to where I could find here your answer? I listen to your podcast regularly, and I always anxiously await the next one. So I'm certainly not doubting that it has bearing on the politics of today. I just want to know what you think. Actually, I haven't really gotten the question in an official way, but I really like the question. And I'm, um, I think it's great that I have an opportunity to talk about it. It is, of course, the reason for being in the show. And let's be clear. History does not necessarily always predict the future. It can give political operators, presidents, candidates, members of Congress, campaigns, an idea of what has happened before, of course. And if it's consolidated, researched, and analyzed correctly, sometimes that's a big if, it can even give probabilities of success or failure of current political doings. It can always provide a deeper understanding of any political subject. By the name of the show, you may be able to infer that I have sort of a postmodern approach, that history can beat up politics, that in effect, the past can beat up, digest, and chew the present. But obviously, history doesn't really do anything 
but it does change perhaps your view and my view of the information you've been given thus far. I think that happens in a couple of ways. History can be probability. To some degree, it's just like sports statistics. If this has occurred in so many times in the past, it's likely or not likely to occur in the future. My favorite example of this would be the second term midterm. A president and the president's party loses seats in a midterm in their second presidential term almost always. That piece of history is as applicable to George Washington and Andrew Jackson as it was to George W. Bush. It's tough to override vetoes. That's as true for Henry Clay, who attempted to override the vetoes of President John Tyler, as it is for Nancy Pelosi today, who's attempting to override the vetoes of George W. Bush. So history can be an accurate predictor of the future. It is not finality. It's not the be-all and end-all. Most presidents lose seats in midterms, and particularly in their six-year midterm. But Bill Clinton didn't. Does that mean that the piece of information was not useful? Certainly not, especially because in the next president who had a sixth-year midterm, George W. Bush, he followed the trend and lost seats in the House. So it's still interesting information, even though Bill Clinton was able to buck the trend. No other president has. So these historical trends don't predict the future 100%, but still indicate probabilities. But beyond just predicting the future, that's not the only reason we do this. And really, the mandate of this show is just to provide more understanding. Helps to understand what would otherwise be theoretical concepts. I could sit here and talk about political science to you, and I don't think we'd have very many listeners to the program. So explaining it in terms of what's happened before with real actors and what they did, rather than theory, helps understanding. And that's why history is important for understanding today's concepts. One of the reasons. People are people. History and now. I firmly believe this. While technology has changed, the population of America has increased, and America's world situation has changed, and there's even been minor changes in American government and some large changes as well. The presidency's obviously got more important. A lot of the dynamics have not changed. We still have human emotions, uh, greed, lust for power, envy, partisan bickering. That hasn't changed throughout the nation's history. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you and what 
Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The group of individuals who met up in the 1800s have some of the same motivations. The institutions in our country have not changed all that much, at least in the federal government. The president, the Congress, they've changed in their relationship and who is more powerful at any given time. But a lot of the mechanics of American government are exactly what the Constitutional Convention defined. So therefore, going back to something that occurred in the 1840s, it can be instructive for what happened today. History is not only in the past. History is in the minds of the political players who are acting on the stage right now. Whether we talk about it or not, it's in their minds. The ghost of historical decisions of past and occurrences are affecting events now. You know, Look at the recent uh, financial crisis. What did everybody immediately go to? The New Deal and start thinking about an activist government. Why is that? It's because the roots are in the actions that were taken back in the 30s. Most of the political actors of this generation are not people who remember the Great Depression, so it's something that they're looking at history. And I guess the final reason is that not all history has gone away. Uh, Historical decisions still impact us. We still have Social Security from a decision made back in the 30s. We still have a Federal Reserve System from a decision made in the 1910s. We still have a large military, something that didn't exist in the 19th century, but we've had since World War II. We still have party conventions, even though they were invented by Martin Van Buren, more or less. We still have primaries, again, another invention of the 19-teens. Knowing where these started and the reasons behind them help to understand why they exist, because they're not history. They're things that are still with us. So, Roundabout explanation, all of these things are the very obvious reason why history is so important today. Americans are not history-loving people in general. There's a, a situation that's close to historical illiteracy. The news media, the MSNBC, the CNN just sort of propagated even more. There seems to be no context to anything they discuss. And there's just what I would describe as vapid speculation talking about all the things they don't know and that could happen and just making sort of random guesses with no historical context. There are some good people on TV too, don't get me wrong. 
and Benjamin writes, What about the Whig Party? What killed them? Was it a sudden death, like when Lincoln got elected, or did they languish in increasing irrelevance for decades? Are there other political parties who have been one or the other of the two-party system but are now resting in peace in the American graveyard? Well, I'll, ask, I'll answer the last question first, and that the party that would fit the description of being in the political graveyard where once they were the two-party would be the Federalist Party. And that existed from, say, the beginning of the nation in 1788. It wasn't really an official party at that time, but basically the supporters of the Washington administration and Alexander Hamilton. Uh, and you could take that into the 1820s, where it just ceased to exist anymore. The Federalist Party. They were the dominant party during the 1790s, although the Jeffersonian Republicans were in opposition and rapidly growing. The Federalists had their downfall during the War of 1812, when a group of Federalists uh, proposed the succession from secession from the United States at the Hartford Convention, and then they were seen as the anti-war, anti-patriotic party, and it wasn't good for the party. They ran an unofficial candidate in 1816, and then were largely gone. But you are right in citing the Whigs as the other party that could be described as the the only time we had a two-party system. Because after 1860, it's been Republicans and Democrats really ever since with some small blips of, of third parties. Its name originating from a group of rebel Scottish horsemen, the Whigs never had much of a center or defining value. It was essentially an anti-Andrew Jackson party. The Whig Party in England was the anti-King pro-Parliament party, and so that's where the American Party got its name from, this party that had been in, in Parliament, because they were supposed to be the kind of anti-King Andrew Jackson party. They wanted reduced executive power, particularly this particular executive, a national bank, and opposition to the Mexican War during that period. Those were the most central issues to the extent it had any unified issues. When Andrew Jackson was no longer part of American politics, the Whigs lost some of their reason for being. The best moments of the Whig Party were the midterms of 1838 and 1846, and then the presidential elections of 1840 and 1848. They had some real bad luck. They elected two presidents that died in office. William Henry Harrison, and then Zachary Taylor. And both of their vice presidents, Millard Fillmore in the case of Taylor, and John Tyler in the case of William Henry Harrison, didn't sort of aggressively take on the Whig policies the way the presidents intended to. So they, because of this, they never got to take advantage, the Whigs, of consistent federal patronage and to establish much of a national party organization. But they did, you know, field candidates during most of the, from the 1830s to the 1850s. Henry Clay attempted to run as a Whig several times. Had he ever been elected president as a Whig, probably would have been a more powerful and longer lasting party than uh, it was. But he, he was not able to get to the presidency. In the 1850s, slavery ripped apart. You had northern Whigs. You had who were generally anti-slavery, and you had Southern Whigs who were generally pro-slavery. 
So after about the 1850s, an 1854 election, when you had the Republican Party born, the Whigs petered out, the anti-slavery Whigs became Republicans, and the pro-slavery Whigs down south became, in a lot of cases, kind of Southern Unionists. They didn't want to leave the Union. They, they were the group of Southerners who voted for John Bell, the Constitution Party, in 1860. A lot of them didn't want to leave the Union. Now, of course, that they, they had to, in different cases, support the Confederacy as their states went along with uh, leaving the Union. Lincoln, uh, Abraham Lincoln was actually a Whig before he became a Republican, and he made speeches for Zachary Taylor, and he eulogized Henry Clay. JMAC writes, Bruce, I couldn't help but seeing the parallels between the 1916 campaign you mentioned and this one. For all of John McCain's self-comparison to Teddy Roosevelt, it's Governor Palin that is filling Teddy Roosevelt's shoes from 1916. The question I have is how much of Teddy Roosevelt's fiery rhetoric was the cause of Hughes, Charles Evans Hughes, uh, loss to Wilson. Charles Evans Hughes was the Republican candidate. You could argue, JMAC says, uh, which has been done for the past two years, that this is a Democratic year. Now McCain has made a good run of it, but this late-in-the-game widening of the polls could be from several factors. But how much of a factor do you think Palin's rhetoric are causing this widening margin. JMAC goes to say essentially that he believes uh, Palin's rhetoric is backfiring. Just two days ago, I read a report that she alone among the four candidates has an overall negative approval rating. I guess a follow-up question would be, what was TR's fortunes after the 1916 election? How did he fare? Okay, a lot to address there. Comparing it to the 1916 election, in the past I've compared 2008 to 1976, where it was really close. It didn't really turn out that way. A good comparison I see is 1912, where you have the kind of staid and very sort of progressive but conservative Wilson running against Theodore Roosevelt, who's an ex-president now, had split the Republican Party, started the Bull Moose Progressive Party, uh, had already been president two terms, People liked him, but also thought he was a little bit bombastic and maybe a little risky. And there I'm seeing a comparison between Roosevelt and McCain the Maverick. And right now, especially in the situation that we're in, voters seem looking for, seem to be looking for someone more solid, someone more calm, someone more collected. And Obama has been doing a pretty good uh, job of that over this general election period. So 1912 is the one that fits for me. You talk about the 1916 election. That is where Charles Evan Hughes ran against now President Woodrow Wilson as he was running for re-election. Very close election. And one of the things that happened, as you cite, is that Hughes was smart. He had been the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. They chose him because being the Chief Justice, he didn't have to have taken any political positions. He was kind of a neutral guy. This was the run-up to World War I. A lot of the country, particularly the Midwest, which was the swing states, did not want to enter a war with Germany. Hughes didn't have a position on it. He was very much in the middle. The problem that occurred was that Theodore Roosevelt, having split the party in 1912, was now trying a little bit of makeup. He wanted to do penance for 
what he had done to the Republican Party, split between progressives and conservatives. Tried to get the nomination in 1916. That wasn't going to happen. So at this point, it was, could he get the nomination in 1920 if he was helping the Republican candidate now? And he spoke almost as much as Hughes did. He went all over the country making speeches. The problem is, he made speeches attacking Wilson for not siding with England and France, not getting involved more and taking a, a harder stance with the Germans. It was probably a little farther than Hughes wanted to go. And I think that it had a couple of, I think the biggest effect on Theodore Roosevelt's action is the impact it had on President Wilson. President Wilson was also kind of wavering. There was a slogan used in 1916, he kept us out of war. It was not a slogan that Wilson wanted. He didn't want to run on that issue. He didn't want to tie his hands. And of course, in the year after he got reelected, he had to immediately go to war with Germany. So it wasn't something he was comfortable with. But politically, Roosevelt offered Wilson the opportunity to be the kind of peace candidate. And from his mansion in um, Long Branch, New Jersey, the president issued several statements uh, kind of indicating that the Republicans were for war. So it made a great issue for Wilson that otherwise he didn't have. Now, let's come to 2008. Is the Palin attacks, the backlash, responsible for Obama's surge? You certainly hear a lot of comments about that. I see events simply as the real reason. Um, if McCain loses, there might be some folks blaming the choice of Sarah Palin. And I guess it's turned out to be not an extremely helpful choice. Uh, my only consideration there as a person who watches history and and looked at this election from early on, is that I'm not sure McCain had much of a chance. And like you said, he made a pretty good go at it. He was probably the best Republican candidate available. But the economy was just not good in 2008 to start with. And the situation in Iraq, although the surge had certainly provided some improvement in the situation from how bad it was, is still just overall a foreign policy mistake that voters seem willing to punish Republicans for. And without improvement in the economy or Iraq, I'm not sure it matters what the McCain campaign does. And and so Sarah Palin, I think, was a distraction in both ways. In the in in August and September, she sort of created a news story and maybe maybe provide a little bit of a poll surge for that reason for McCain. And then with some of the later statements, she sort of uh, didn't help the ticket very much. But I don't think she's the fundamental reason for the loss. There's another question that comes into that, and that is, what will be Palin's future? This is a big question right now, and I will be replaying the podcast on losing vice presidential candidates if, indeed, the McCain ticket loses. If the ticket loses, I don't see a bright future for Governor Palin. A lot of Republicans will, and there will be a small group, maybe a third, that will be backing her. And uh, because there'll be a kind of a dead cat bounce that, you know, the Republican Party will be beaten so badly, they'll just be looking for anything. But history kind of shows that those the losing members of any ticket, there's just enough people that seem to think that, you know, you were part of that loss that they don't want to uh, provide another opportunity for you to run for president. So 
One of the worst ways to become president, at least so far in American history, is to be the losing candidate on a presidential ticket. We talked about this with John Edwards, and it certainly didn't work out for him. The exception to that rule is Franklin Roosevelt. Of course, there was a big space of time, 12 years between the time he was a vice presidential candidate as a young fella and in in 1920 and then in 1932 when he ran for president after being governor and, and, of course, a disastrous year for Republicans. In terms of what happened to Theodore Roosevelt after the 1916 election, well, in a sense, it sort of worked for him. He did his penance, and although there was a group of Republican conservatives that were never going to forgive Theodore Roosevelt for the 1912 election, he helped a lot in 1916. It still was pretty close, and he definitely helped Republicans running in the midterm elections of 1918, where Republicans took back the House and Senate, and he made a lot of speeches for those House and Senate candidates and bought himself a lot of goodwill. Had he lived, he died in 1919, had he lived into the 1920 presidential election, it's difficult to predict these things, of course, but I think there would have been enough support there to overcome the conservatives and get that nomination. His good friend, uh, General uh, Leonardo Wood, got a decent amount of votes in the convention as it was, and he, of course, was not Theodore Roosevelt. Carl Stowicki writes, My question regards the usage of the word democracy by U.S. politicians. Today's politicians throw around the term like a buzzword. The United States was designed with Jeffersonian democracy in mind, not the majority rule sense. At what point in U.S. politics did the word democracy morph into today's mob rules interpretation? Thanks. Uh, it's an interesting question, uh, and, and there's been a couple of comments about this, and it, it was something that the Founding Fathers shared. As you know, Founding Fathers, the bulk of the people we call founders, the, the people at the Constitutional Convention, were afraid of mob rule. Mobs, random crowds in the street were part of what helped to fight the British, the, the initial protest in Boston, but also the Revolutionary War soldiers were kind of from this mob. But... You know, merchants were funding the operation, most notably John Hancock in Boston and the Morris family in Philadelphia. It was a merchant class rebellion, to be sure, the American Revolution. The one area of democracy where the founders seemed to consent to popular rule was in the Congress, in the House of Representatives. This was almost unanimously uh decided to be a vote of the people so that people would pick their representatives. States would determine the meaning of a popular vote. In some areas, that meant all people could vote, working men, people who didn't own property, etc. In other states, only property owners could vote. James Wilson, a delegate from Pennsylvania at the Constitutional Convention, proposed that the Constitution demand a direct election of the president. This was easily voted down, and the Electoral College was created. Obviously, that is not a a system of mob rule. The electors are chosen people who would then go and choose the president from each state. Same thing with the Senate. The senators were to be chosen by the state legislatures. This was also a way to limit the, the angry mob from taking over the federal government. Even the constitutional ratification itself, the process of approving the Constitution, was taken away from popular vote. 
wasn't to be that. It was to be constitutional conventions in each state that would meet and decide whether to ratify the document. So the founders kind of feared the mob. One of the reasons for the Constitution was that you had Shays Rebellion in Massachusetts where former Revolutionary War soldiers were attempting to overthrow the government of Massachusetts or at least defy the government in their area. And it wasn't something that the Constitutional Convention wanted. Of course, we can look at those viewpoints now and think that they're archaic, but you know, anyone who was against mob rule at the time of the founding of the country got a bit of I told you so. There was a revolution in France. The king was beheaded. And between 1793 and 1795 developed the most bloody period in France, the Reign of Terror, where the Committee of Safety was uh, killing people. You know, mob rule is not democracy. Whenever you get a mob of what they called the San Calais, it was just a who could get a bigger mob of more violent people who are controlling the action, not a vote of all the people. So mob rule is certainly something to be feared, and the French Revolution proves it. We've never quite had that in the United States. Popular democracy began from the 1800s and into the 1850s. We started to get expansion of voting rights. State by state started to remove property rights to voting. The Jefferson Republicans and later the Jacksonian Democrats had... Uh, They kind of perfected the system of getting average people to vote. But these were never the type of mobs that we've seen in the, in the French Revolution. I'm not sure we have mob rule politics today. The instincts of populism, like McCain's invoking of Joe the Plumber, represent uh, something that's very common. Uh, Nixon in referring to the silent majority you know, Franklin Roosevelt speaking about the forgotten man. It's something that politicians like to invoke, the luster of populism. But it's seldom do we really get a kind of large distribution of income or hands out, handouts to the mob in American government. It just doesn't happen that often. Uh, maybe you could argue in the 30s was uh, the time that it happened. And uh, even there, I think some of the steps were small compared to the rhetoric. And... Uh, yeah, you know, we just really haven't had mob rule. I tend to believe that the voting mechanisms, where in most parts of America we still have to go to a physical place and vote, sort of keep the more interested and perhaps the more educated people being the majority of people who vote. A lot of people who aren't turning out uh, aren't interested in, in politics and, and are not educated on it. Uh, you might have a total mob rule if you had uh, internet voting, if internet was just, if voting was just a few clicks you made in the morning of election day, uh, it became something like a web poll, uh, one might be concerned about that, that you'd have a true mob uh, situation. I look at the example of initiative and referendum in California, and having visited California a few times, not from there, looking in windows and seeing vote for Prop 3, vote for Prop 61, etc., vote no on 54, etc., where you know a group of citizens can just change laws as opposed to just the representatives being able to do it. You see how quickly it becomes just another tool of interest groups. And there's people and sometimes corporations that provide a lot of funding for one proposition or another. 
And not only does it not necessarily bring everything back to the people, because you need a lot of money to both pass these referendums and defend against them, but it also just makes things very chaotic as the law is changing back and forth as different referendums pass. That's a form of mob, mob rule in American government. I'm not sure that states uh, should adopt the California model. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance, a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less, right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.